This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we continue to examine the life of David, looking at the defeat of Goliath and making some general observations about the character of David. Yeah, so we did a podcast on Shaul and David last time. I'm going to spend one more podcast on David. And um, uh, he'll be in the middle of a lot of things that we're going to do, but we're going to kind of move on from there, which seems ridiculous. Like, how do we not spend more time with David and we'll try to do a good job of wrapping him up by the time we're done today. Um, and the other reason is to be honest, it's one of my weaker parts of my material. Like if I were to put all of the Hebrew scriptures on a table, uh, I would definitely identify, uh, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles as one of my weakest areas in the Hebrew scriptures. So, I'm not going to pontificate a whole lot about things I haven't studied a whole lot yet. But I wouldn't. I would not have pegged that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Apparently, you're you're doing well enough. I'm putting on a good show. No, I'm just kidding. I will say though, David is kind of a recurring character in the scriptures. Yes. We're going to hear more about him. Yes, we are, and more from him. I guess in in the case of <laughs> you know correct. things like the Psalms. That is correct. So that's a coming down the pipe. Um, we have a. Uh, we want to spend some time, we're going to start looking at the David and Goliath story. Um, there's a Haggah project here that because we broke for the summer, we didn't get to deal with. But whew, should, we, should my... we just give it out and just let people <sighs> run know. with it? I don't know. Let's no. let's see. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll have to talk to me in person. We'll give people a... Okay. All right. We'll give people a, an incentive to if, come to class. Yeah. Maybe we'll maybe we'll dig it. We'll definitely dig into it in class. How about that? Well, for those who are not on the Palouse, how can they? Well, if they if they if they give me lots of money and support my ministry, I'll come visit them eventually and say thank you. There you go. <laughs> we call that paying for my attention. That's what we call that. Oh my goodness! Gracious. You're not you're not paying for salvation or anything no, like that. No, none of that. There not, is no indulgence like here. Right. Just merely. Rabbi's attention. That's horrible. This is like a, a joke and, and uh, man, one of the worst openings to our <laughs> podcast ever. Sorry, I was just trying to give people some. <laughs> I mean, they can just, they can, they don't need a specific project. They can hug out the text. Without That's right. A, they sure can. Yeah. They can write me emails. Just Nothing dig in there. Them. Dig in there. Nothing stops them from writing yeah. me an email. If you're on the Palouse, come to discussion group, get it in person. Heck yeah. If you're not on the Palouse, just get in touch. I like it. We'll help you out. It's fantastic. Um, so, uh, David and Goliath, um, a couple things about this. I, I cannot teach on this story without admitting just how deeply, uh, the teaching of Ray Vanderlaan has shaped this. So this lesson is most definitely not mine. Uh, there are some pieces that are unique to me, but, uh, man, I heard this from him, um, uh, in person multiple times. Uh, I've got to experience it in the Valley of Elah, where the story is set multiple times. Got to teach it in the Valley of Elah multiple times. And uh, But I have to make sure I just give that shout out. We'll find. We'll try to find the, uh, the lesson. I believe it's in his series. It's an older lesson, so it's from the older parts of his series. Um, but uh, we'll try to find a link to that and at least link the DVD so people could buy it and find it, rent it, whatever. I've been having people tell me that a lot of the libraries that they go to, oh, uh, they're finding it at, at local libraries. So, hey. That's fantastic. That's pretty good. Church libraries, whatever. Uh, uh, the other thing I would point out before I dive into it is there is a teaching that I, I kind of like. Um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a little mini TED Talk. 
So a lot of people know Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, he did a mini TED talk called "The Unheard Story of David and Goliath," and uh, and he 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 brought some really unique things to that talk that I don't think were uh, were incorrect at all. I, I really liked it. I think he made some really good observations. I'm going to go a different direction. I'll do respect to Mr. Gladwell, but it's it's worth looking and and I don't think they I don't think what I'm going to do and what he's going to do are going to contradict at all. Um, but I just kind of want to throw that out there because I was intrigued by that. Um, but anyway, uh, David and Goliath, how about, I think you've got the story pulled up, Brent. How about you start reading that there, and I'll just stop you as we go and add some commentary as we walk along. All right, First Samuel 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sukkot and Azekah. Shaul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the Valley of Elah, and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Shaul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Shaul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Okay, so to set the stage a little bit here of what's going on, um, there's a, a, a huge argument in academia about what the story is referring to and where the Philistines are, are camped. Uh, it seems like popular secular opinion um, makes absolutely no sense to me if you stand there geographically. The reason that this battle is being drawn up in the Valley of Elah um, is, uh, boy, we might even be able to find a map for this, Brent. You might even be able to put a map for this in uh, our show notes. And I've probably got some pictures too. You probably do. Um, but there's, if we were to look at a map, there are uh, there are four valleys that kind of serve as fingers that stretch into Jerusalem. And if you're going to lay siege to Jerusalem, you're going to, especially from the coast, you're going to have to come up one of these four valleys. So these valleys are the valleys that you fortify, you defend. Uh, these are the access points, if you will, to taking over the, the land of Israel. So what's happened here is the Philistines are, are encamped between two places that basically make a huge horseshoe. As the text reads, it says they're camped all the way from Soko, um, Ephes Damim, uh, they are they are on an entire ridge, and the and the Israelites come and they set up camp on the other side of the valley, um, and, and really, if you go there in person, there's only one place. If you read it the way that I'm reading it, there's only one place that they could set up their camp. Um, but, but in between Azeka, Soko, Ephestamim, they are they are greatly outnumbered geographically. Uh, but they're trying to hold a defense against the Philistine who are who are threatening to start pushing in towards uh, deeper into the land 
of Israel. And so they're coming out and they, they are putting forth, this is a common form of ancient warfare where you would have, in the Hebrew, you would call it uh, Ish Habanim. Ish Habanim is the great champion, the, 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 the champion man. Um, you bring out your best guy. We have this huge army. You have your huge army. This could be a big bloodbath, or we could just settle this mano y mano. You give me your best. I'll give you my best, and we'll see who wins and, you know, winner take all. Uh, so this is common, and so they are just greatly outnumbered. There's this huge giant that comes out. I believe we're going to hear later in the story. He comes out at morning and afternoon or evening, which alludes to the sacrifice times. So if you can imagine Israel at their sacred hour of, of there's a shofar that sounds, there's a sacrifice that's being offered in Jerusalem at that moment. It's an hour of prayer. It's a time where everybody kind of, of looks to God, thanks him for the, the, the covenant renewal. And here's Goliath uh, shouting defiant insults, not just to the Israelite people, but about the Israelite God. This is the setting here, but but they're just shaking in their boots. And so go ahead and keep keep reading. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Yesi. Jesse? Yesi? Yeshai. 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 I'm like, Yesi, there's no way. Yeshai. Yeah. <laughs> Yeshai. Yeshai. Who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Yeshai had eight sons, and in Shaul's time, he was very old. The old people again. Keep pointing that out. No kidding. Rough on the old folks. No, not in their world. Old is good. Okay. All right. There we go. Yeshai's three oldest sons had followed Shaul to the war. The firstborn was Eliav, the second Avinadav, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Shaul, but David went back and forth from Shaul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. There's that morning and evening reference. So in the Hebrew, that alludes to those evening, uh, those hours of sacrifice. Now, Yeshai said to his son, David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Shaul and all the men of Israel in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Yishai had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. Okay, now at this point in the story, have we read about how long they had sat there already? Did I miss that part? Uh, yeah, I think he said it was 40 days. Okay, so Saul's been here for 40 days. Now, does that number stick out to you at all? Mm, yes, it does. What is that number related to? Uh, well, 40 years in the desert. Okay, 40 becomes a number for? Uh, testing. Testing, or... right? So Saul has been put to the test here. The author is making that quite clear. Saul and the people have been here for 40 days. They have had a period of testing and they've... Uh, had an opportunity to show God what's in their heart, and what's in their heart is fear. Uh, they don't. They are. They are here shaking in their boots. They don't trust the story, particularly Shaul as king and leader. 
he has been tested and he's been found wanting in a lot of respects. Here he is not willing to engage, not going to do it for 40 days. He sat here and done nothing. So now God says, time for somebody new. And, and so these people, they, they're hearing this. David's going to hear this and you can keep going. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what had what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliav, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Kind of a nasty big brother knock there. Where are those sheep you left out there? Those you, few sheep. It's like, few sheep. you don't even have that many. That's right. Oh man. All right, go ahead. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported Shaul, and Shaul sent for him. David said to Shaul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Shaul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Shaul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because oh, man, that's that's a big that's a big throwdown there from David. I've been watching my sheep, Saul. What have you been doing? Hmm. I don't know about you, Shaul. I've been doing the work of a shepherd. I don't know if David necessarily meant it that way, but as you read this, as the author tells it, I don't know, Shaul, what you've been doing as Israel's shepherd, but I've been taking care of my sheep. Go ahead. Uh, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. David really likes that phrase. I know, living God. Yep. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Shaul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Shaul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Shaul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Okay, so one of the things I'm seeing here is David is willing. Um, I think I'll actually leave that thought just kind of hanging right there. But the one thing we're seeing here that's that's different is David is willing. Saul's had 40 days to do nothing. David's been here for, as, as the story reads, hours a day, and, and he's willing to go down and do something about it. Okay, let's keep going. Yeah, it sounds like he showed up right before, you know, the first call out by Goliath. Right. And then he's like, well, what are we going to do about this? Right. And everybody else is paralyzed by logic. Like, everybody else is like, you, you, well, you can't go out there. Like, you, you, you can't go out there. And, but the thing that you pointed this out, the thing that David is so consumed with is that phrase we talked about last podcast, Kadush Hashem. Like David is concerned with whether or not God's name is going to be holied. Like I'm here because of God's reputation. Like if nobody else is going to do something, I'm going to do something because of God's reputation. And you want to ask the question, like where has Saul been? Where has anybody been to protect God's reputation? That's this little 
runt shepherd boy shows up and says, well, I'll, I'll go do something. Um, I'm not going to sit here and do nothing. And he keeps referring to him to, to Goliath as the uncircumcised Philistine. Yes. Like, hey, we're the ones with the covenant. Exactly. With the living God. Yes. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. That's a very strange phrasing. I know, um, we've heard that before. Extra credit to anybody who can remember we've heard that phrase before. And he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands." As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Sha'arim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Shaul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Avner, commander of the army, Avner, whose son is that young man? Avner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Avner took him and brought him before Shaul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. That's a fun picture. I know. <laughs> I know Games of Thrones right there. Ugh. What What are you talking about? I've never heard of it. <laughs> Whose son are you, young man? Shaul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant, Yishai of Bethlehem. All right. Good place to stop there. Um, So a few observations here, um, just to get us thinking about this story. First of all, uh, Saul was how many cubits high? Uh, Six, right? Six cubits high. All right. I don't know what that means. How, uh, can you remember how much a spearhead weighed? Mm, 600 shekels. 600 shekels. Uh, we know from Chronicles that Goliath is famous for a brother who has how many fingers? Uh, six. Six fingers. Uh, this is interesting. If this was common knowledge, that would mean that Goliath would have a number of six, six, six. His armor was like what, Brent? You read it. 6,000 shekels, wasn't it? Uh, well, his armor was like as oh, 5,000 shekels. Okay. But Skill. his armor was like what as he wore it? Oh, gosh. I don't remember that part. Where it was, was a really weird descriptor. His armor was like scales, we were told. Oh, yeah, there, yeah. So if I were to tell you that his armor was like scales and his number is 666, I would immediately think of what image? Uh, some kind of a beast. Yeah, some serpent in the garden, Remy. Well, let me let me read to you from Genesis 3.15. Uh, this is what God tells the serpent all the way back in the Adam and Eve story. 
Uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. What was it that David did to Goliath? He smacked him right in the head with yeah. a with a stone. The exact word that was used was crush. So you have this image of David, and I'm not trying to take away the um, allusion to Jesus in that Genesis passage either, but, but pre-Jesus, when this story is recorded, there is most certainly an allusion to David is defeating the forces of evil here in this story. Um, but there are things that we... Uh, that is kind of the big teaching point for me that I got from Ray as I studied this uh, story was it's not just that Saul's in a tent and David's went, this is exacerbated if we know our text. So uh, we were told in the book of Judges, you're like, whoa, whoa, where are you going? Okay, all the way back in the book of Judges, we were told something about the tribe of Benjamin. Do you happen to have, when they were, the tribe of Benjamin was going to war with Judah and all these people here, do you happen to have Judges 20, 15 through 17? I certainly do. All right. At once the Benjamites mobilized 26,000 swordsmen from their towns, in addition to 700 able young men from those living in Gibeah. Among all these soldiers, there were 700 select troops who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 swordsmen, all of them fit for battle. Okay, so this war took place between 26,000, maybe 700, and 400,000. Slingmen, 700 slingmen who must have been pretty darn good at their job. Like, this is like a, like a special forces, like a Navy SEAL unit here, left-handed slingers from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, that's interesting. This story is about somebody using their sling... But which tribe was Saul from? Uh, Saul was Benjamin. Saul was from Benjamin. And apparently Benjamin knows their sling like nobody else. Like as you see David marching down this hill, this shepherd boy with a sling in his hand, like if you know your text in the book of Judges, everything in you is screaming, all the lights on your dashboard are going off. David's not supposed to be marching down the hill with a sling Shaul is supposed to be marching down a hill with a sling. Not not only that, but if we knew our text from even a few chapters before, I believe you have 1 Samuel 13. Notice what happens here with Shaul earlier. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's commands. Okay, so this is before the David and Goliath story. There's an allusion to David, a man after God's own heart, and the fact that Saul won't trust the story, and that's why the kingdom is being taken from him. And what does he do next? Then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Shaul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Ooh, how many of them were in the judge's story? 700. But how many are with Saul now? 600. Ah, And this illusion with Hebrew numbers, if you went all the way back to the beginning of our study, we talked about numbers. There's an illusion here that Saul is trying to act on his own strength. He doesn't have enough. Seven is the number of completeness. Six is the number of sinful man. Saul is relying on his own strength. He's that Arar bush we talked about before. He's... He, he looks good on the outside, but he's not doing it God's way. And so the story, you see, this story is, 
is so interesting because David is willing to put what he has to use, but he's not even the best at it. And so one of the phrases that Ray just taught us with passion was throw your stone. Uh, There are so many people out there listening to this podcast uh, that have a stone to throw. Everybody has a stone to throw. Uh, It might be training that you have in a vocation. It might be a passion, a talent, but you're here on this world to throw a stone and you have to throw your stone because if you don't throw your stone, it doesn't matter how good you are at it. God can't put it to use. Like Shaul is sitting in his tent up on the hill and God can't, it doesn't matter if Saul's good with a sling or not. God can't do anything with a slinger who's just going to stay in his tent. David, on the other hand, is just a shepherd boy. They're known for being pretty darn good with their slings. And as Malcolm Gladwell will put it, it's a great weapon to take out there to fight this giant. But nevertheless, David's not the guy who should be marching down the hill, but he's at, le- at least he's willing. And God can use a stone that's in the air more than he uses a stone that stays in the riverbed or in your pocket. So you got to get out there and throw your stone. It doesn't matter if you're the best of the best of the best at what you do. Get out there and do what you do anyway, uh, because it's so important to throw your stone. One of my, my favorite lessons uh, about David. Um, so before we get done, let's just kind of wrap up uh, some snapshots of David. Um, and, and like you said, we'll be coming back to David quite a bit. But here's this guy who's willing, and he's willing because he he has this heart to Kadush Hashem. Uh, I, I have some notes here that I wanted to read. Um, like we, we have this David character. I mean, the days of David are still to this day considered to be the glory days of Israelite history. Uh, the scriptures have God speaking of David as, as a man, that passage you read, a man after his own heart. Um, I mean, these are the days people still talk about. I mean, it's a star of David on the flag of Israel. It's it's the kingdom of David. People are looking for a son of David when, when Jesus comes there, which is interesting because David already had a son, um, as been pointed out in a book called uh, Jesus Wants to Save Christians by Rob Bell and Don Golden. Uh, David's first son, Solomon, we're getting ahead of ourselves. It doesn't work out so well. So people are always looking for that promised son of David that never came. David is the kind of like the glory days. Now, on the flip side to that, I would also say that as I've looked at the life of David, there are a lot of moments where I'm not impressed with David. So it's interesting that David ends up being like, and it's not just because, well, David made a mistake with Bathsheba. No, there are, some, there are quite a bit of stories where David's um, decisions are questionable. Um, a good book I'll recommend, you can put in the, in the show notes, uh, Where God Was Born by Bruce Feiler. Uh, he actually wrestles with this tension because everybody, everybody talks about David, the glory of David, King David, 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 and and Bruce is a is a Jew, and and uh, he he says growing up I always wondered, David didn't seem like the best character, <laughs> like he's no Abraham, he's no Moses, um, but boy do we talk about David. Uh, so I kind of hold both of those things. I hold that tension in both hands, but there are definitely some observations we can make about David's life before we close here. Uh, first of all, and maybe most important, David seemed to have an unusually intimate walk with God. David was a man of spiritual practice. If even half of the Psalms that are attributed to him actually belong to him, there's a debate about how many of those songs are ex- Psalms, 
uh, are actually should be attributed to David. But if even half of them are, then this man has a very high level of spiritual awareness. Um, I think Brother Lawrence, if you ever, another book, um, Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Uh, I think Brother Lawrence would say that David uh, knew what it was to practice the presence of God. David sings to God with such new, uh, such raw emotion and genuine expression that his heart erupts with worship. He sings of how sweet the law of the Lord is to him and how he meditates on it day and night. This is a man who knew, at least for a long period of his life, how to set time, energy, and we said, create a space for God. Uh, Second of all, David, especially toward the beginning of his life, uh, seems very unconcerned with spreading his own fame. David is here to Kadush Hashem. He's here to spread the fame of the Lord so that the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel, he said in our story today. I mean, that was his line. I'm going to do this so the whole world would know that there is a God in Israel. Uh, He'll say this more than once. And while I'm going to have the same problem with David's thirst for war that I had with the book of Joshua, I'm not going to deny that, uh, David is fighting a different kind of war. He's not trying to expand his own kingdom or his own name, but he's here uh, to help God accomplish his purpose of restoration and redemption. And that kind of leads into my third observation, which is that David sees the marginalized. David notices the down and out. He does remember the story. He remembers where he came from. He's seeking to bring justice. We're going to talk about, eventually, we're going to talk more about mishpat, restorative justice uh, to the world around him. Um, Often this will be what drives him to battle. It's not to enlarge his territory. I mean, David is not out on a world conquest tour. Um, he, he's going to battle in response to the misuse of power. Um, the one story that always sticks out in my mind is when David sends messengers uh, with glad tidings uh, to a neighboring king, and then the king abuses those messengers, uh, has a lack of hospitality, sends them home humiliated. He cuts off their uh, their clothes at the buttocks and shaves their bodies and, and humiliates them. And David sees it. Uh, David sets out to right the wrong, not because of retribution, but because David has heard the cry of these messengers that have been mistreated. Uh, David will share the spoils of victory, even with those who don't contribute, simply because they belong to the community. That's one of my favorite stories. They come back after this battle. A whole bunch of people didn't want to go up. Only a few people go up. God gives them victory. They come back and and they obviously say like, well, all you people who didn't want to go up, well, you don't get any of this, any of the booty. Spoils. And David's like, oh no, that's not how God's economy works. Everybody gets a share. Everybody gets a piece. Uh, This is who David is. Uh, This list could just go on and on. And I think what we see in David is a man who is here to lay down uh, his life for his sheep. He's the quintessential shepherd, the epitome of the one who is here to lead with his voice. His counterintuitive, upside-down approach to ruling God's kingdom, God's way, is what sets him apart as a different kind of a king, a different kind of a leader, a different kind of a man, a man after God's own heart. At least we could say until later on in his life, when he seems to forget where he comes from. But alas, I may be getting ahead of myself. (sighs) Remembering. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? We'll find out. It'll be a few more podcasts, so we got to do some stage setting is what's coming next. So, World building, perhaps. World building. Ooh. <laughs> I like that. All right. Well, uh, it was great. Love it. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. You can find me on Twitter at EIBCB. You can find more details about the show at BaymondDiscipleship.com. 
Uh, be sure to get uh, plugged in with our Bama Discipleship Facebook page as well. Marty's uh, consistently posting stuff there, so you can always find something interesting. And thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.